From the National Project on Race and Capitalism, welcome to Season 3 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. Wanda Njoya is a senior lecturer and head of the Department of Language and Performing Arts at Daystar University in Kenya. Her teaching and research interests include gender, culture, and politics of Africa and African diasporas, specifically how they are seen in literature and film. Her writings centered around what Pan-African history and thought mean for everyday life issues. She holds a PhD in French from Penn State University. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast. And let's start by talking. You've written extensively about education, neoliberalism, and inequality in Kenya. Yeah. For our audience, can you first describe you know, the school system for those of us unfam- unfamiliar with either the 844 or what A levels are? And then maybe talk a little bit about the effects of neoliberalism on Kenyan schooling and education. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you because I really (laughs) admire your work and I was really excited to find what you're doing. Okay, in the 70s, we had an education system in which people spent seven years in elementary school or what we call here primary school and then spent four years in, in high school. But the four years was divided into two sections Students went to secondary school for four years, and then there was an examination, which we called O-levels. And then when they passed, if they passed that, they were selected to join the A-level system, which was two years. And then when they do the exams, if they pass the A-level exams, they pass, they go to university for three years. So in 1985, that system was replaced with... What seems to have been a kind of liberal arts idea where you have students doing all subjects across all the the disciplines, and that was the 844. So 844 was eight years in primary school, four years in secondary school, and then four years in university. And then starting two years ago, the government decided to replace the 844 system with what looks to me like the previous system, except that now they say that they have two years in nursery school before six years in primary, another six years in high school, and then three years in university. There there are so many uh, similarities between this system and the system which the 844 replaced I think the basic idea is that there have been so many system changes and replacements which are done at the political level without much consultation with the the teachers and the schools. And so every transition becomes very messy and for, I think, like five years in each new system, people don't know what they are doing because the decision was not made for educational reasons. It was made for political ones. But what is happening with this new system, and and this is where I'll start talking about neoliberalism, is that it's being uh, changed. The justification is that we need to change because we need to prepare our young people for the market, for jobs. So the competency-based curriculum, which is what we are going to get or what we are getting now, 
the focus is on skills and they even say explicitly that they don't want much knowledge in the new curriculum. They just want people who are prepared for the workplace. So in that sense, it becomes neoliberal because, uh, at least for me, neoliberal is, uh, neoliberalism is the imposition of market reforms, social reforms in the name of the market. And, and that's what we are doing with the education system. We are reforming it for the market. So we don't care what students become as citizens or as people or as human beings. What we care about is how do they serve the market needs. Well, one of the things that I find, I wish I did find puzzling because we have the same type of educational reform efforts here yeah. with reform in quotation marks mm-hmm. is that I wonder what jobs the people who originated this system think that they're preparing the students for. Are they preparing them to head corporations? Are they preparing them to lead governments? Are they preparing them to you know, lead the next scientific or technological revolution? What type of mark are the students being prepared for under this system? Actually, in fact, it looks a lot like uh, what uh, Booker T was asking for, just uh, <laughs> technical manual skills for building. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk of infrastructure development. So that mm-hmm. means construction. So that's what they want. They want builders, masons, uh, carpenters, plumbers. So those are the jobs people are being prepared for. And, and so the government is quite explicit about it. They say that that's what we need. So where are the architects and the planners who are going to make the plans for these infrastructure projects coming from? Now that you say it, actually no one talks about that. Because if you start to talk about being the architects and the engineers... The political rhetoric says that you are aiming to be a manager and we don't need managers, we need more skilled people. That's the propaganda. The propaganda is that people who go to school do not expect to work with their hands, they only expect to be managers. So the professional skills that you're talking about, like planning, engineering, architecture, are not being catered for in in, in this system they say that once this, the children get to high school, there'll be what they call pathways. And, but what, what, when you look at the documents that the government has been using, the pathways are quotas. So they are going to put 60% of Kenyan children in the, in the technical jobs, the, the manual jobs, and then they are going to distribute the remaining 40% to, you know, to things like architecture, but they don't want to talk about that because I think underneath this reform, they are not expecting children of the elites who will enter those jobs to be part of, you know, the government system. So really, the government reforms are about the reforms of sort of the 99%. That's what I suspected. There's a fair amount of the same type of educational reform being promoted in both elementary and secondary schooling, as well as collegiate-level education, but clearly aimed at more working class or 
populations of communities of color, yeah. while the people who are still going to Harvard or Yale or other elite universities are getting still getting a general education, you know, f- full liberal arts education, and are walking into the engineering, managerial, what some people are calling here the creative class jobs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. And in fact, so interesting about these education reforms is that they are basically following the U.S. reform model. So we are seeing a lot of talk of skills and competencies and people needing to work with their hands. STEM, people talk a lot about STEM. So, and later, actually, I found out that some of these reforms are being sponsored by American uh, corporations who are using the same language in the U.S. So that leads into my next question really nicely, which is one of the phenomena that some of us have been trying to resist, not very successfully in the United States, Mm -hmm. is the corporatization of the university. And that both means the influence of the corporate world in the university life Mm-hmm. And how and university practices, but also the university itself being reorganized to be more like a corporation. Yeah. To what degree do you see either of those trends in in Kenya? Oh my, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, what happened is that uh, about I think about ten or fifteen years ago, the government told universities, the public universities, that. Um, they should source their own funds for for education. So that is what made the universities decide that the way to make money is to become a corporation. So so what they started doing was applying business practices to university management. So there was an explosion of campuses, which was so strange because... The they, universities would set up multiple campuses with few, with little equipment, not enough qualified lecturers, and they would say they would think that they would get money that way. But you see, you have to also teach those students and invest in their education. So, eventually, the universities ended up running a very heavy bill, which they could not. Uh, meet. The other thing they did was to increase the number of students, so the, the size of classes exploded. We also had increase in types of programs with very dodgy names, sort of to vocationalize. So instead of teaching, uh, for example, media, you're going, you talk about radio station management or something like that, that makes students feel, okay, if I take this degree, I'm going to be employed as into a specific job. So there was an explosion of these kinds of programs, but there was no increase in the number of uh, teaching staff or in their facilities. And then we started having uh, management, uh, corporate management uh, styles, like for example, universities started becoming ISO certified to make sure that they are managed properly. So basically, they were being certified to run as, as companies. We also um, saw a lot of imposition of uh, performance management and appraisals. So the use of measurement 
to to uh, determine whether there are quality outcomes from the education system. And then with this increase in number of students and in number of programs, they decided to make up for the shortfall of teaching staff by hiring part-time faculty, meaning uh, adjunct. That's what the Americans call adjunct faculty. So right. fewer, we, the number of, uh, of, of full-time faculty did not increase. Instead, we had more adjunct faculty. But for me, the sad story in, in this whole scenario is that uh, the, the, the full-time faculty were seduced by this idea. I think we liked the idea of becoming CEOs and managers and having drivers, chauffeurs to take us around. Um, some even had bodyguards, some, some of the university managers. And then also for the rest of us, instead of asking for more full-time faculty, we asked the universities to pay us the cash that they would have been paying the adjuncts. So that way, um, the pressure on full-time faculty increased. But even though we were earning more cash, we were doing more administrative work and our working conditions were deteriorating. And I guess cash was too seductive for us to give up. But also the problem also for the adjunct is they are overworked. They have to work across universities, across the country. And so it, it, it's a lot of stress for them and they don't get to give good education to, to students because they can't, they don't have time to devote to, to teaching students. We have some of the same problems here. The adjunct problem is certainly one we have. And part of it is, one, the refusal to grow full-time faculty, even though in many cases, university sizes have been growing, uh, university student bodies have been growing. Mm. But also, in some cases, the overproduction of PhDs as well has been, been, been something of a problem. Mm -hmm. But one of the things, one of the tendencies we've seen here are, A, sounds very similar to what happened, I think, in some of your universities, is the expansion of for-profit schools that promise people that they'll give people jobs that cost a tremendous amount of money and often people, you know, like take their, their benefits, their government benefits to go to these schools mm -hmm. and then these schools either fall apart or the jobs aren't there. They're very under-regulated and this current administration is making it easier for those for those type of enterprises to rip off students. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's happened in tremendously, um, I was talking with my students in class about this yesterday, has been the expansion of student loans and student debt. Mm -hmm. Student debt has become a trillion dollar industry in the United States. Mm -hmm. So even when students get a good education and maybe even go into a decent job, mm -hmm. they're saddled with debt that might take them 20 years to pay off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same thing. In fact, right now as we speak, there's, there's a looming crisis because uh, the body that uh, lends students uh, loans has been sending private debt collectors after the students, and the students must pay uh, back, they must start paying back the loans whether they have employment or not, whether they have an income or not. So, in fact, it was just this week, actually, that this conversation came 
up again because the young people are raising uh, the alarm about you know why they should be paying uh, back loans when they when they haven't um, haven't yet got an income. One of the well, I mean, I think one of the things we've we've talked about in the past is that we've been talking about neoliberalism in education, but neoliberalism has been an ideology, a set of practices that has expanded into many different domains, not the least of which is politics. Mm -hmm. In the United States, one consequence has been the Democratic Party and or the Labour Party in the United Kingdom is very similar, mm -hmm. have become much more conservative parties that don't have any allegiance to a strong self, uh, social welfare state that can bring about greater equality mm -hmm. as they had to at least a small degree in the past, if not to the degree that many of us would like to see. Mm -hmm. What type of effects has neoliberalism played in Kenyan society and politics? Let me just back up a little bit because there is debate about whether uh, neoliberalism applies to Africa. And cool. yeah, and some people feel that it doesn't, that we are just simply in a neocolonial state, which I agree. Um, I think what is different is the language and the legal framework that is being used to entrench these new systems. So the IMF, through austerity programs, has forced governments to withdraw from providing subsidies for agriculture or for providing health care or education. And so now we have an increased amount of privatization of these services. I think the language of the market also has kind of made uh, people feel that they cannot rely on anyone. And in fact, the language that politicians use is that you should not expect anything from anybody. You have to pull yourself by the bootstraps. And so um, every time there's a new reform in, in the social services, the public message is that this is a good thing because this is how the, the, the economy and the institutions become more efficient through privatization. So in a sense, what it is doing is that it is forcing citizens to not demand as much from the government in terms of provision of social services. But also the, the sad thing we are seeing is that there's an increase in the language of criminalization, of saying that if people are not making it, it's because they are criminals and they are lazy and they are not working hard. And then there's also a lot of measurement um, of outputs in, in the workforce. So what is happening is that there's a rise in, in frustration, in frustration especially of people who are working and of the unemployed, which leads in turn to mental illness and addiction. And we are starting to see more and more uh, people committing suicide out of stress. And then there's a lot of harassment at, at work, a lot of abuse, sexual harassment, both in the uh, education institutions and at the workplace. And all that is coming from the end of collaboration, the introduction of competition into social relations and into institutions, and a lack of care for the public. 
even when institutions fail the public, the, the, the people in charge justified are saying we are trying to make the, the institutions more efficient. But you'd think efficiency means better services for us, but for them, uh, efficiency means that their appraisals come out well and that they get a promotion. So there's a lot of selfishness and, and frustration that is coming out of this reorganization of social relationships through the market. That is a story that sounds frighteningly familiar to those of us working other side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And at least two questions come to mind. One's a political question. Are any of the political parties in Kenya trying to say, wait a second, this is not serving the needs of the people. Mm-hmm. We need to rethink the direction we're going in. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, no. You see, the way politics is organized in Kenya, it's a long ethnic negotiations. So each ethnic group has their, you know, their main politicians and every election the politicians negotiate power between each other. And in fact, actually it goes on for the whole five years, you know, negotiating between each other, who gets what appointments and who gets closer to the president and all that. So we don't have a political party that is actually addressing the social needs of Kenyans. And, and in fact, that is something that has become very frustrating for Kenyans because when we watch the news, we just see politicians talking about one another, about the next election, insulting one another, but they, they don't talk about health care or education. And even when they do, they are talking about giving us money for those services and not about the quality of, of those services. So we don't have a political culture infrastructure for us to be able to, to talk about issues. And I think I'm starting to feel that the media is part of it because they, I think because of ratings, it, you get more ratings when you have politicians uh, insulting one another and responding as opposed to reporting on why an institution is not working or what is happening to patients in hospitals or children in schools. That is not as seductive as having politicians insulting each other and, you know, talking about, you know, what are the prospects of winning in the next elections. So we don't have, I think the political party that talks about that is us, the people. We are left to our own devices and to to push forward the conversation about social services. Yes, it's much the same here. And the media here goes from scandal to scandal. And when we talk about elections, it's mostly about as you said, what, you know, horse races, you know, who's going to come out ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to talk, for example, how are we going to care for the elderly in our society or deal with the unemployment rates in our most devastated communities or re- revitalize declining rural areas in the United States. Those don't seem to, seem to um, at least in their minds, uh, create the type of ratings, and we don't get those type of discussions. Yeah. And I'm not saying that some, we shouldn't be paying attention to some of the scandals. Some of them are quite horrific mm-hmm. and need the tension, but that can't be the sole content of political discourse mm-hmm. um, in any country. Mm-hmm. But you, what you said also raises a theoretical question and a debate that 
I've had with some of the guests on, on, on the podcast, yeah. which is the relationship between neocolonialism and colonialism on one hand and neoliberalism on the other. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see them as in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite possible to still have colonial institutions in place, mm-hmm. but have neoliberal discourse, neoliberal ideology, and, and the type of dismantling of social services mm-hmm. that, that are accompanying neoliberal practices mm-hmm. while still being in a colonial regime. Yeah. How that debate playing out, as you said, in Africa, where some people are saying that neoliberalism really doesn't apply, but colonialism does. Well, I haven't, let me be honest, I haven't seen much about what Africans are saying. I've, I've, I've just had maybe two scholars. One, one scholar saying that neocolonialism uh, is no longer sufficient to talk about mm-hmm. the current situation because uh, the problem with neocolonialism is that it pits, you know, white foreign colonialists against black indigenous locals, and it doesn't take care of the class element. That the fact that um, the colonial project is being facilitated by uh, the comprador elite. So he says that maybe we should move from talking about neocolonialism to talking about neoliberalism. But others feel that neoliberalism is a a Western problem that we shouldn't be taking on as our agenda because for us, uh, the infrastructure of exploitation is still solidly colonial. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's somewhere, you know, it's a mix of two because, um, yes, the roots of the neoliberal pr- project are colonial, and even the infrastructure is colonial. What is really striking is the language and the discourse and the laws which are being used to entrench this, the, the return to colonialism. That is what is new. And that is why, for many Kenyans, they can't tell... You know, when you tell them that this is colonial, they can't see it because you're talking about a, a black government minister and mm-hmm. a government a, and a black president. So when you say colonialism, it doesn't quite ring true, but the language that this black cabinet minister is using is the same language that is being used in, in, in the West, uh, the language of the market, of efficiency, of reform, um, of privatization. They are, it, it's still the, the very same processes that are being used. And let me just say also that um, many of these laws for private, privatizing social services are being given to us direct from the West. I remember, for example, when, when I had just come back from my studies and we were told that we had to implement what is called the Bologna process. And the Bologna process was the, is the EU project for standardizing university education um, in, in the EU. And I remember asking, you know, why are we implementing uh, an EU project when we don't even know where it came from or what its goal was? And we were told... If it is good for Europe, it means it, would, it will work here. So we are having, um, I, I think even also I saw in some of our policy documents, they're talking about voucher programs for, for Kenya. I, I know that did not come from here. So 
a lot of these policies are also being drafted for us elsewhere and being put in the books because our comprador elite are going abroad. They're going to, the, to, to Europe and, and the US on what they call benchmarking tours. And then they bring back these policies and insert them into our books without even asking, you know, what do these policies mean and what is the interest of these companies or these countries in imposing these laws on us? That could be quite devastating. I would argue very strongly that one of the leading exports of modern empire mm -hmm. is neoliberalism. Yeah. And that... Therefore, the work of colonialism is actually being done through the type of neoliberal social policies, educational policies that you just described. Mm -hmm. And even within the EU or within North America, it's very clear that a lot of these programs are not even in design for the best. It'd be hard to argue that Europe has had the best interests of Africa at heart for long, at, at any point. Time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But even within those regions, um, neoliberal policies have not generally benefited poor people, working people, people of color mm -hmm. in, those, in, in those countries. Mm -hmm. I was just reading some of the work that one of our colleagues in the project, Racing Capitalism Project, Ashley Campy has done mm -hmm. for the Social Science Research Council's website. And one of, the, one of the points that she makes and other people who have traced neoliberal, neoliberal thought have made is that we're told it's all about freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. But the actual, if you go back to the actual records, neoliberalism was designed as a program, as a project to break the democratic control mm -hmm. over economic institutions so that elites could, be, could once again capture a much larger share mm -hmm. of a nation's wealth mm -hmm. than they had in the middle of the 20th century in places like the United States or Western Europe. So even though they talk about freedom of choice, it's about freedom to exploit and freedom to expropriate. Yeah. Yeah, and and here we are. Of course, if you tell Kenyans about freedom of choice, that doesn't ring true. So the language we are using is efficiency, that private sector mm -hmm. is more efficient than the public sector. And so when we are handing over public services to the private sector, it's for the sake of efficiency and and better services. And that's why you know the Kenyan public basically accepts it as as fact. So you have to now start explaining to people that actually that's not what it means. What it means is that you're going to be charged extra money for these services, and also your taxes are going to be used by the government to pay for those services. So you're paying twice, and yet um, and the services don't necessarily improve. And in fact they become more and more out of the reach of, of more Kenyans. We, we use the rhetoric of efficiency as well, but yeah. I think some parts of the population have become a little bit jaded. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the voucher programs and charter schools have both been sold by freedom of choice language as opposed to efficiency language. Mm -hmm. uh, I think part of the reason is that I don't think parents necessarily are concerned about efficient school systems. Mm -hmm. But freedom of choice does work in this country as a way to sell a program. Yeah, and, and like here in Kenya, you know, the public sector has been so vilified that sometimes you don't even need to justify 
private sector as more efficient. You just say it's privatized. Um, these people are going to give you a good education. And people accept it without asking, what does good education mean, really, when, when the private sector is, is giving it? And, and uh, just like in the US, the private schools are cutting corners. Um, for example, they just like I, I've had uh, American scholars say this about the charter schools in the US. Um, the same thing is happening here where private schools, for example, they, they may teach kids, but when the kids are doing the exams, they are registered in a, in a, a public school or a less endowed school so that if the, the child does not do well, it doesn't reflect on the on the on the private school. So they are cutting those kinds of corners, trying to build build the the private schools as businesses with the best students. But um, you see another lie that Kenyans, especially the Kenyan middle class, has bought into is that my kid will be different. My kid will work hard. I'll give her all the resources she needs, and she will be a bright student. But, you know, the reality is that that is actually not the case. And because we shame children who don't pass, when they don't pass, the parents won't ever talk about the fact that the system seemed unfair because um, they feel, oh, oh the, the, my child didn't do well because uh, they didn't work hard or they were not bright. It's not because there's a problem with the school. Like I said, this sounds sadly familiar. Mm -hmm. One of the other topics I think that you write on, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is what, you, what, I've, what some people have called environmental imperialism. Can you tell me a bit about how that affects citizens in Kenya? Yeah. I think because the Kenyan economy is supposedly built on tourism, what we have seen over the last few uh, decade or so is an influx in white European and American so-called conservation environmentalists coming and taking huge tracts of land from local communities and saying they are doing it to protect the wildlife on that, on that property. And my friends, Mordecai Ogada and Mbaria have written a, a book called Big Conservation Lie about what is happening. But the real agenda of, of these people, including people like Prince William and uh, I think it's the Wildlife Fund or some, some, comp some NGO like that, the real agenda is um, actually the minerals underground, the biodiversity. Sometimes they even uh, sell... They, they extract some of the biodiversity from these uh, lands and they sell it under their own uh, patent. And um, then the, what results is a criminalization of the local populations. So, uh, for example, they will use an extremely racist language uh, to justify this expropriation of land from local communities. Uh, they will call whites hunters, so whites come and they hunt wildlife, but black, blacks, black Africans are, are called poachers. Or the whites who hunt and, and consume wildlife meat are called 
they refer to it as game meat, but when it is Africans who are consuming this meat, it's called bush meat. And there's a whole, eth uh, you know, ethnological language that is used to justify this industry, you know, talking about uh, the local communities as people who are overpopulated, they are not controlling their childbirth, and when there are clashes, they say that it's because... We are, we are too many and we are encroaching into the wildlife areas. And what they are doing is disregarding the indigenous systems of, of uh, collaborating with the wildlife and preserving the environment. So they are, they are expropriating land from, from the local communities in the name of saving the wildlife from us. And, and then, of course, I think for me, the, what is so violent also about it is that um, all the, the hunters and the NRA enthusiasts are coming to shoot wildlife here. And yet, and that is considered tourism, but when uh, Africans uh, kill wildlife, it's called poaching. So it's a whole racist system that is not being challenged enough, especially in the West where it is so rampant. One of the areas that's understudied and, and certainly there's not enough activism in places like the United States around these issues is questions of how racing capitalism and tourism interact mm. and can be an extension again of extensions of imperial and colonial rule mm. and expropriation from indigenous and local populations. Mm. One of our colleagues, I know, is beginning to think about that question with respect to Brazil, for example, where those type of interplay between, in that case, gender, sexuality, tourism, and race all intersect and have been for well over a century. Yeah. Perhaps we can end by you telling us a little bit about your own work. You certainly are active in multiple spheres. What are you working on these days? Unfortunately, because of the, you know, the whole, I, I was originally trained, I, I did my PhD in French, in Francophone African literature. So I thought when I'd come back, that's what I would study. But when I came back, I found this onslaught against the arts. So, and that's how I got into studying what is, what is happening with that. And that's how I got to find out about neoliberalism. So... I've been blogging mainly about all this, but I'm hoping to, to now collect all my thoughts together and all the reading I've been doing and do something on, on neoliberalism and education in Kenya. I'm particularly interested in, in the use of racist tropes to talk about education. Like I said I'm, I find it curious that, you know, the language of vocational training instead of a liberal arts education is being used to justify ed education reforms. And people are not, seem not aware of how colonial and racist that language is. So that's something I, I, I'm hoping to, to, to work on. Um, I, also would, I, I also have been doing a bit of research on arts education the fact that we are now using the language of talent to talk about the arts, which in turn is a commercialization 
of, of the arts, but at the same time, a way of denying arts education, especially to the poor. It's to say, you don't need arts education, you just need to sing and you're talented and you'll be paid for it, which, which usually they are not paid. So those are the things I would like to work around about uh, neoliberalism and especially the racist, the use of racist language. Because unfortunately, um, in Kenya, and I think this is what is happening in the rest of Africa, people don't want to talk about racism anymore because they are saying we, we are independent, white people went away. If you talk about racism, you're hating white people. So I think it's important for us to reintroduce uh, the analysis of race in Africa because it is being hidden by ethnicity, but it is still as potent and as destructive on African societies as it was uh, before independence. That's an extraordinary agenda and an important one. And what we are trying to fight here, you would think in a place like the United States that was organized around race, in the interest of capitalism, you would not have to make the argument that race is important, but that's something we fight in both the academic and political and social world every day. People, people are tired of talking about racism we hear all the time. Yeah. But one of the things we have to do is make sure that is also attached, as you've been talking about for the last 40 minutes, to an understanding of how, for example, black elites in the United States are also profiting from the system mm -hmm. and thus become part of the system that, to be blunt, oppresses most, you know, the great majority of African Americans, particularly those in poor communities. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, we have to be able to find language to be able to talk about both aspects, the, both the internal um, class dynamics as well as how racism as a system still helps to shape not just our interactions with each other, but also the economy, the state practices, and society at large. Yeah, and, and what I really, really liked about the race and capitalism project you're doing is that it, it sort of uh, clarified for me. I, I used to have a feeling that this language was very racist and that it was being used to entrench inequality, but I couldn't put my finger on it until I saw, I saw the work you're doing. And, um, you know, I think it's, it, I mean, we, we have to find a language in Africa to be able to quantify the kind of tropes that are being used by two black people, for example, but one is using a very white supremacist language against a fellow African. That is just so bizarre. And we have to be able to say it in a way that makes sense to Africans because, especially because the colonialism ended over 50 years ago, you have a whole generation of people who have grown up under, under African rule. So when you use the language of race, they don't quite understand what you're saying. So, so for me, that is the, the challenge for African scholars to, to, to find a way to integrate that kind of analysis in a way that people understand that this is a relic of colonialism, that colonialism hasn't ended, racism hasn't ended, even though we are talking about um, Africans being ruled by, by fellow Africans.
Well, thank you very much. This has been fun, and we should do this again in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, yeah. And thank you for all your work. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on RacingCapitalism.com. That is RacingCapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.